Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And today we will be hearing a program that, well, I was fortunate to have heard it as it was being recorded. These are the psychedelic stories from Symposia's Blue Dot Tour Stop here in San Diego. And to be honest, I was uh, pleasantly surprised at the size of the crowd that night. I don't know uh, what the final number was, but uh, there must have been close to 50 people there, including uh, Mike, Brian, and Lex from Symposia, along with the volunteers from the AWARE Project. But rather than have me continue to tell you what uh, you're going to be hearing in this podcast, why don't I just get out of the way and uh, let Lex take it from here. Today's show is made possible through your crowdfunded support on Patreon. Unlike other crowdfunding sites, Patreon lets you chip in a few bucks a month to help us keep the lights on. Find out more at patreon.com slash symposia. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Today we've got a great episode of Stories from San Diego, which is naturally a hot spot of psychedelic community thanks to the work of the AWARE Project, bringing people together. So we start off with Amy on the magic of weed, and then we hear from Matt Palomari, who will be our guest uh, on next week's show. And then, lucky story number seven comes from the one and only Lorenzo Hagerty. That brings me to my big ask for this week. So we've been doing this for a little while, thanks to Lorenzo contributing to the Psychedelic Salon. We've got some episodes under our belt, and we're getting our system worked out, thanks to Matt and Brian. And hopefully you out there are getting used to the sound of my voice. And so I want to ask for your feedback on how we're doing. I want to know what you like and what you don't like about what we've been up to. Because I know this is a bit of a strange transition. This podcast went from featuring the words of Terrence McKenna, who was one of the greatest wordsmiths and raconteurs of the last century. And now it's focusing much more on featuring the voices of the people. We're doing storytelling sessions that are open mic. I'm interviewing experts that are drawn from the wise elders. And some of them are known, but some of them are quite unknown. So I want to know what's working for you. What kind of subjects do you want to hear more about? Do you have any people that you think I should interview? Do you want to hear more storytelling or less storytelling? What do you think? What do you want to hear? So always feel free to send in your comments to pelger at gmail.com. That's P-E-L-G-E-R. I'll always respond, and I'm always curious to hear more from people about their drug experiences because, obviously, they are endlessly fascinating. Everyone has a tale to tell. So here's the ones from San Diego. Until next time, enjoy the ride. So um, I'm a little bit nervous to come out of the psychedelic closet. Um, But I met Lex in New York City. 
in February, and I was there to hear Robert Barnhart's talk. I happened to be in, in town. I flew to New York for the launch of a book called Stealing Fire. If you haven't read it, I do recommend it. There's a whole chapter about psychedelics and how it's contributing to humans being able to reliably access altered states of consciousness to up-level our thinking. So I was there for the book, and I came to hold the mic closer to my mouth. I came to the um, Alchemist Kitchen to hear Robert Barnhart, who um, is the producer of that movie, uh, of a whole new understanding, a new understanding about mushrooms. So that night he shared his experience with psychedelics and his life story, which was really moving. And at one point he, he shared an experience he had with LSD, and it was very profound and moving and, and you know, um, inspiring and to hear him share that so openly. And he encouraged everyone, if you've had an experience like this, to come out of the psychedelic closet. So I have had exp an experience like that. I've had some really fun experiences um, in my relatively short life with psychedelics. And one of them was an acid trip on my 20th birthday uh, with my best friend and I had completely had the experience of being one with the universe. I could um, send my mind and my awareness back through space to the moment of the Big Bang and then project it forward and watch time elapse backward and forward. It was really great. It was really fun. And it left me with a deep knowing that we're all one. You know, this is me, the universe, it's all different um, elements rearranged, and um, it's nothing more than that. So even though um, it's been years since then, and I, and I haven't really shared it much with, with anybody, it's, it's left a, a profound impact in my life, just that knowing. You know, so sometimes I'll um, be sharing with somebody that I think world peace is possible, and most people think that's absolutely crazy. Um, and so I start questioning, well, maybe I'm crazy. Um, but I realized after the talk in New York that um, having had that experience, that cosmic perspective that gets talked about, it, it just seems like a no-brainer. Like, we're all going to get it, right? That we're all connected. Like, we're all... That's not that crazy. Like, don't hurt other people. And... <laughs> you know? Like, we're all humans, we're all walking around, cruising through space on the same little rock. We all came from the same stardust, you know. So I, I don't think I'm the one that's crazy, and I absolutely think that um, experience with psychedelics for sharing that awareness and that experience with me. The other thing that I wanted to share, and I don't know how long I've, I've got to share, but um, growing up, my dad was... Wildly and severely alcoholic. Um, I could, you know, tell you some some pretty gnarly stuff that I experienced as a little girl. Um, but it, it it left an impact. We'll just say that. And I think most people who've experienced or been around somebody who's alcoholic could relate and understand without saying too much more than that. But as an adult, I found myself um, at 30 years old going through a divorce that was unwanted and unexpected, and my heart was just completely broken. And I turned to alcohol. Um, I knew better, I'd seen my dad do it, but there was comfort in it, you know? And, um, and I wanted to check out, and I felt like, like I deserved to. 
because my heart had just been smashed. Unfortunately, I don't deal with alcohol well. It's not good for my body. And even though my friends all, you know, I would share, I think I'm, I think I'm drinking too much. I think, I think I've got a problem. And my friends would say, oh, no, you're just going through a divorce. It's fine. You know, here, I, you know, have some, have some more wine. Um, <laughs> and, it, you know, and, and that was not a healthy way to cope. And it went on for years of, you know, mostly social drinking, but I was also drinking alone and, and drinking in excess. So um, I quit that cold turkey a couple years back and was stone cold sober for a full year. It was, it was quite uh, shocking. <laughs> like no substances, no anything, no checking out. Let me just deal with the stuff I have to deal with. And sure enough, there was still grief and things from my marriage that had just been shoved down there and hadn't been processed. And that came up and I got to deal with that. Um, but a revelation happened when I went to visit friends in Denver and they offered me some gummy candy infused with THC. And I, I tried pot in, high, in a little bit in high school and um, a little bit in college and just it was way too intense. It went out of my head. I talked to God. I could read people's minds. Like, I don't think most people have that experience on weed. So for me, I was like, I can't touch that stuff. Like, if I, the only way I would ever do that is like if I was deliberately going on a peyote type, you know, vision quest. Because I, you know, I one, yeah, was leaving my body and decided, well, my boyfriend's gonna wake up with a dead girl, <laughs> so I better come back in. But I didn't want to. Um, and that was just weed, you know, in Utah in the early, in the late 90s, so it probably wasn't that strong, <laughs> right? Um, but this stuff in Denver, this was just um, probably about uh, nine or ten months ago now is all, um, was really nice. It was measured out, it was easy to dose, and I had a very relaxing experience where I'm a clinical hypnotherapist, and I was able to put myself into self-hypnosis and process and, and release some trauma that was residual. Um, my younger brother died of a, a heroin overdose, most likely. It's a little bit unclear, but he had a heroin addiction and um, some painkillers in his system. And, and so um, I had some residual stuff with that. So on a little bit of medical-grade THC that I ate in a gummy candy or something, I was able to have a deeply profound self-healing experience. So when I got back to San Diego, got my card, and damn it, you know, having the ability to take the edge off of life a little bit, but in a way that has me be more present and engaged and aware of and, and recognizing patterns. Like my life has drastically up-leveled and improved since I started eating a little bit of edible THC here and there on the weekends at night to relax and up-level my thinking. It's really, really amazing medicine. And I keep watching for, like you were saying, like, well, my life's probably going to fall apart soon. You know? <laughs> 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 this can't just be good for me. This can't just be okay. You know, because <laughs> it's, it's too good. There's, 
I'm healthier, I lost weight, I, like, I'm happier. It's so much better. Now, I was recently socializing with people that really love alcohol and were drinking way too much, and I was, you know, practically wanted to say, put down the bottle and pick up a joint or something. Like, that's the wrong substance for social interaction and social cohesion, and, you know, it actually is very detrimental for the body and for family relationships. But enough of that soapbox. I'm really glad I switched. Uh, teams, and I'm happy to be here, and I'm uh, happy to come out of the psychedelic closet for the first time in front of all of you. So books like uh, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception and uh, Carlos Castaneda's Separate Reality opened my mind up to this stuff. And uh, also, there's a, a Russian guy on YouTube. His uh, channel is actualize.org. His name is Leo, and he's originally from Russia. And uh, he's the one who uh, talked about the mushroom experience. And after that, I, I decided to take it. So, let's see. So I've had a few experiences with it. and. Uh, I think the second one was w when I had this religious experience and I felt like, I just felt like this glowing light and I felt like it was like healing my chest area and where I usually hold a lot of, uh, I guess, there's unexpressed emotions there and, uh, and I guess some pain and stuff like that. So. So there was this like the glowing light and that feeling that I was connected with this divine consci consciousness, and I've never had any kind of religious experiences. I've never been a believer in anything, and so this was like for the first time I was like, oh my god, like this is it, like <laughs> thank you so much, and I was like, it was so emotional, like I just had like tears pouring out and like sobbing like I've never cried in my life. And it felt very healing. <laughs> it felt like uh, this uh, tension and pain was slowly releasing. And I was like, this is like the best experience of my lifetime. Um, and I felt like people need to know about it. People just need to know about what this stuff can do. And, uh, and after that, I... Uh, I really got interested in this. I started learning as much as I could about it. I started um, just, uh, I watched the Joseph Campbell's The Power of Myth, and that had, like, that started solving the puzzle for me, like, especially how he talked about uh, religions and how that's, a lot of people, how they misinterpret that and, and see that as, like, Okay, there's God out there, right? And there's like Jesus Christ is a person that was crucified, but he talks about how that, that's a metaphor of what's going on inside of our bodies. And so Jesus Christ, it's like us being crucified and the uh, process of crucifixion is actually ego dying on, like, it's the process of ego death and your uh, spirit ascending to this higher consciousness from the animalistic state you know, of being and from the, the egoic state. And anyway, I, I feel like this is what, 
we are we're like in, in the middle of this paradigm shift. Like uh, on one side, there's like this ego survival uh, duality, like this uh, uh, separate, um, you know, me versus you, uh, my religion versus yours, um, my sports team versus yours, Russia versus United States, you know, countries, and. Uh, on the, other, on the other side, this is like the, the higher consciousness, the oneness, love. Um, there's many names for it. We call it like quantum field and divine matrix. Uh, so that's that's where I feel like people people need to know about this. See, and I feel like us here, we're like we're gonna be the first ones to tell people and uh, to be like the healers and tell people about this stuff because. I feel like my my life completely changed after this. It's like I feel like I need to tell people about it, and people don't know what this stuff is. They they just people that take the stuff recreationally, guys. It's it's like that's nothing. Like you gotta you really gotta like set the time aside, prepare yourself, and gain as much knowledge as possible about it. Because if you use it in the right way with the pre right preparation, it will show you what this consciousness state looks like. It will reconnect you with your true self and and you re realize that you're we're all one we're all like higher consciousness and we're just like here temporarily in these uh, vehicles we call bodies so and uh, not only like the internal stuff but also it showed me like my true potential of what I could do like there's like these hidden talents that I've never explored because I've lived most of my life here with uh, you know, through social anxiety and being isolated from uh, from other people, and so I built up these uh, unnatural ways of behaving, unnatural ways of thinking, and mushrooms showed me like I could see clearly all that stuff while on the trip, and I had this wisdom, and I, I was like, okay, this this is reality, not this, not like all, all the stuff that I created, all these walls that I built up around myself. This is it, and I was just like emotional, and I was just experiencing what it's like to cry and laugh for like, like genuine, authentic emotions for like maybe the first time in my life, and uh, and I feel like uh, if you had this experience, you just gotta re uh, relive it. You gotta remember it. You know, you gotta keep it fresh and uh, learn as much. Uh, we, I'm still learning a lot about like uh, I feel like I know very little about it and I want to talk to you guys uh, if you had this experience I really would love to talk to you guys about it because I'm still uh, I'm still trying to figure out and like uh, what else is possible on it like how much there's feels like there's infinite wisdom on it and you can learn so much about it and you can transfer that into this world and like see what your true talents are, what uh, what you're really capable of, and this has also just propelled my my life into like a new direction. Like I'm I'm now starting to take voice lessons. I'm starting to explore the, this creative side of me, and uh, I feel like I'm gonna use this, this like these talents to as an art form to really tell people about it. And this is like my new life purpose, and that's what I feel like doing. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm minorly embarrassed to say I've got 
I'm coming up on close to 50 years of very intense psychedelic experience. Um, I'm officially, if you go, if you Google my name, my website, I'm an author, editor, shamanic explorer. And um, I've been studying ayahuasca for about 30 years and I've been going into the Amazon for coming up on 20 now, doing very intense plant dietas. Um, Lorenzo and I met some years back. You guys know about the psychedelics lawn. Um, we've had lots of adventures together. You may refer to some of them. We've gotten in trouble and gotten out of trouble. And <laughs> lots of fun stuff we've done. Um, but I, I also like to uh, bill myself sometimes as the unofficial co-host of the Psychedelics Salon because I helped him get it started. Uh, when we used to go to the uh, Entheobotany, they used to have the Entheobotany seminars back, I was like, for me, it was like 96 to 2000. Terrence McKenna was there, Sasha Shogun, Ann Shogun, all, all the greats. And it was a week long of very intense experience, not only artistically, intellectually, and musically, but all the chemists would come. <laughs> and uh, we had some wild adventures. So anyway, um, I've also been teaching writing for like 25 years at the Santa Barbara Writers' Conference, Southern California Writers' Conference, all over the place. And I actually teach, I'm glad I heard the reference to Joseph Campbell because I have a book um, called Fantastic Fiction with a PH, and it's a shamanic approach to story structure, and I teach and lecture about that all the time. So I'm all about shamanism. All of my writing is shamanism underpins it all. I'm in a bunch of different genres. I have 13 books out right now. Um, and I've got maybe 15 different translations all over the place. So I'm, I'm all over the place like a map. So you, you can video me everywhere. I don't care. I'm, I'm out of the closet for a long time here. <laughs> so what I thought, um, by the way, are you guys all from San Diego? Pretty much? Okay. So I've been, I've been in San Diego since 78. And uh, I've been a big part of the writing community here. So I am proud to say that this Spirit Matters, my memoir, which I'm going to read out of, won the San Diego Book Award for the Best Spiritual Book a few years ago. And I'm not here to toot my own, although I'm very good at that. Um, the reason I'm stoked about that particular award is because this starts with ayahuasca and ends with ayahuasca, and, and I talk about my long and jaded history of drugs and how it came to be for me. So I was really... Uh, ecstatic to, to get that award, you know, to not be judged like, you know, you, you know, you, you druggy, you hippie, whatever, right? Okay, enough of that. Reach out if you're out there on social media. Uh, if you just Google my name, uh, I was uh, telling Lex, any pal of Mary's a pal of mine, it's easy to remember. And so, um, I thought I would just read the little opening here, it's not too long. First off, you know what? Because there's an underlying theme to all of this stuff. Um, in the beginning, I have this little quote from Nietzsche, and it says, It is returning. At last, it is coming home to me. My own self, with a capital S. And those parts of it that have long been abroad and scattered among all things and accidents. Okay, so this is a prelude, and I called it a waking dream. If anybody's had any experience with ayahuasca, that will make sense. But if it doesn't, maybe it will after this. I am outside of time and space where the normal rules of perception no longer apply. 
Colors with hues that defy description bombard me, then unfolds in multicolored geometric progressions that could be microcosmic quantum expressions or unfolding galaxies. Within these realms, I have lived as an insect, devoured by still bigger insects, which have in turn been devoured by lizards and snakes with long ethereal stomachs that have passed me into non-rational dimensions that both amaze and terrify. Outside of my physical body, the frogs, birds, insects, jaguars, and other creatures of the Peruvian Amazon filled the night air with their calls, cries, twitters, and buzzes. For me, there is no difference between the infinity expressing itself outside of me and the infinity that I soar through inside of me. It is all one. Outside of time and space, a noise from deep in the jungle sounds as if it's right beside me, startling me. Sometimes I feel myself fully present and aware in two places at the same time, often in different times and dimensions. After experiencing the consciousness of predator and prey in the lower worlds, I have flown first as a condor, then as a hummingbird into sublime and exquisite high-frequency realities, exploding with neon-luminescent pastel manifestations that defy rationality. While my spirit soars, my body quivers on my insides, teeter on the verge of both vomiting and shitting. I soar between agony and ecstasy as each experience awes my soul with a pallet of emotions that range from heavenly bliss to a hellish, maddening terror that cannot be articulated, much less comprehended. I am vaguely aware of others sitting around me in the humid jungle night inside a circular open-air hut called a maloka. Many of them vomit, and sometimes cry out in fear or bliss as they pass through their own visions. I feel my soul connected to theirs. Our visions are directed by the music of a white-clad mestizo shaman who sings magical songs and plays different flutes and a stringed mandolin-like mandolin instrument called a charango. He is the keeper of a vast body of knowledge of Amazonian healing plants that dates back to prehistoric times. His specialty is a unique combination of plants that have brought me to this visionary state that continues to unfold outside of three-dimensional reality. In this waking dream, where time and space become fluid, I not only soar through alien vistas of sight, sound, and feeling, I also travel through events of my life, both good and bad, often reliving them in their emotional content. Throughout my journey, I often confront hidden aspects of myself that have been ignored and denied because of the negative emotional charge that they hold. I sometimes vomit when confronted with something particularly unpleasant, which clears it out energetically in what is called a purge. I have come a long way to this remote spot, deep in the primordial rainforest, far from civilization, to spend extended time isolated in nature to learn what the plants have to teach me especially about myself. To be healed, I must confront the forces that have driven and tortured me throughout my life so that I can understand the lessons that they have to teach me. To get to their root, I must travel back to my beginnings so I can come to terms with the energies that brought me into this life. So the shamanism uh, has been expanding. Um, I've even spoken to Christian groups and uh, the title for my topic is 
the world's real oldest profession. <laughs> so I spoke to this Rotary Club in uh, Santa Inez a couple of years ago, and all the wives came, and these big money Christian guys are all there and everything. And they're all there, and I can, they're all like, you know, and so I said, first off, I'd like to thank you all for inviting me here to speak about the world's oldest profession. And, they all went, and I went, yeah, look where your minds are going. Well, guess what? You're way off. The world's oldest profession is shamanism. And then I just started getting into it. My specialty is South American shamanism. Um, and uh, there's so many elements in the world in terms of religion and spirituality uh, that are shifted. So I'll just say this, because I'm trying to use my two minutes to be efficient here. Um, organized religion is about the words of prophets. The prophet or prophets, be it Jesus or Buddha or Muhammad, go to the cave, go to the middle of the desert. I freak out the Christians love when I tell them, I guarantee you, if I go into the desert and fast for 40 days and 40 nights, I guarantee you I'll be talking to God. <laughs> right? So shamanism is the root of everything. So the prophets go out and have their visions and they write about it and somebody gets that and they translate it and somebody else translates it and somebody else translates it and that gets turned around and somebody else does it. By the time you get it, who knows what the hell it was supposed to be in the beginning. Shamans say, bullshit. They say, you go out and you have your visions. Direct experience. Shamanism is about direct experience. So I spent my life, another, there's many, many, many definitions of shamanism, but one of them is a bridge. So I've struggled all these years, and I've been writing for over 30 years now, um, to take those non-rational, visionary experiences that really can't be articulated, and I've struggled and struggled and struggled to articulate them. So that those people who haven't been blessed to be able to go to the jungle like I have, and other places too, uh, can maybe get a sense of what it's all about. And so it's my way artistically of contributing to getting this stuff out there. You know, a lot of big researchers are very good friends of mine. Uh, I've done work with them. Um, sometimes they even come to me for my advice, which just tickle the hell out of me. <laughs> anyway, uh, thank you for indulging me. Thank you for coming. Uh, keep on so much everyone for being here. Thank you so much Symposia and just everyone making safe space for the evolution. I'm really grateful to be standing here with my love of almost 10 years. Yeah. Um, a few years ago he tells me he has a heroin relapse and we had been together six years at that point and just devastated and long story short uh, talked to the trees and went deep and Iboga the medicine from Africa remembered me it felt like <laughs> Some, somewhere along the way um, I had heard about Iboga and it, it just came to me I couldn't remember where I'd heard about it or that it was good for addiction did a lot of research it was really uncertain uh, there's a lot of, a whole gamut of things on the web. Who's ever heard of Iboga? Can I get a raise of hand? Okay, awesome. Not the usual thing. <laughs> One reason why I wrote the book, you know, we had our experience, and I'm like, have you heard of Iboga? And almost no one in our country had, uh, and that seems to be a crime. Um, so, 
you know, I did a lot of research, had to sift through a lot of dubious research and um, present it to him in his state. And there was fear and questions and more research and terror, you know, horror stories of someone who did not approach the medicine in a good way. Uh, mail ordering online, doing it alone, not, not a good outcome, especially for that level of medicine. So, made it by the skin of our teeth, I think, really, to a traditional African shaman is what we ended up uh, going toward, Mugenda, who worked with a medical doctor in Costa Rica, and uh, blood, sweat, and tears in here, <laughs> just like medicine work. And in 24 hours, um, the man, you know, we went in, I could barely recognize him, and the next morning was the man I fell in love with. I could see his soul again, which was remarkable. Clear eyes, clear skin, and the four words. I love my life. <laughs> I can only share my experience with the medicine with you. That's, that's it. That's the only place I can come from. And when it comes to that medicine, like she said, like Elizabeth said, within 24 hours, I was a whole new person. And yeah, a brief history of myself, like I was addicted to drugs at a young age. Um, I don't say I fucked up, I say I basically went into lesson. So by going into this lesson um, at a young age, I, you know, jails, institutions, and death, and all that, all that good stuff. And basically, um, you know, uh, rehabilitated myself at the age of 22. And then built my whole career up, because I'm an artist, created the artwork on this cover of this book. But um, that's what I'm known for, and I've built up my whole career, my art career. And in that time, like, you know, fell into some circles of dark forces, you can say. And from there, basically went back into lesson again. Um, by doing that, that was about a good, I don't know, three to five years. And then that's when, you know, got honest with myself and got honest with Elizabeth and told her what was going on and, you know, put everything on the table. She started talking to the trees and Iboga came out. I was scared as shit. I didn't, um, you know, I'm not really about the whole psychedelic uh, mentality, you know, even though, you know, you can probably see it in a lot of my work. But when she talked to the trees, Iboga came out and it was like, okay, it's either do this or you gotta get so I said, okay, I'll stay. And we went to go to Iboga in Costa Rica with Magunda, shaman out of Africa, 12th, 10th, uh, gen at least 10th generation Guiti shaman. So um, went there and like, I went in there like uh, two weeks clean before I went, because I like had to prepare for this, because it was like this, the, what I what I learned online about this medicine was like some real intense shit. 
you know? So we went to the first ceremony and it was kind of like it didn't really work for me, but it was working. It was actually detoxing my heart, my body, soul, my spirit, everything all at once. So, but I still felt it wasn't working, even though I was noticing like dark forces eating each other, like hovering over me, you know, but still wasn't working. <laughs> but the shaman, he's coming doing a psycho spiritual, my goodness, he's coming doing a psycho spiritual, and I'm telling him, ah, this stuff isn't working, you know, but he's just like, no, you're still detoxing. Because before you enter the spirit world, you have to be pure. So, and usually, this is a very intense medicine. I really, I actually fell asleep on it like the last two hours of it. You know, and usually people don't do that. So, but when I woke up, it was like, I was like a, a new person, like a new being. I jumped up, what the fuck is going on? Like really, I was like so happy. That love. Was there, I was feeling that warmth. And then I just went and gave the shaman a hug, picked him up and all that stuff. And you know, and then we went to go try to sleep for another two days because the medicine really lasts about a good 48 hours. 48 hours. And you know, the rest is in the book. But let me leave you with this, you know. Um before I hand the mic back over to Elizabeth. I did have an experience with ancestors, and that's a major part of it. So, you know, I called upon my ancestors during a ceremony, uh, a couple ceremonies after we've done the medicine. And, you know, I ended up on top of a, like a pyramid, breaking through my vision. And I'm, I'm telling you this story because it's not in the book. Um, on top of this pyramid was uh, like a 10-foot Bleti shaman, skin made of, made of the universe, with a big bright smile on his face and big bright eyes, holding his hands up in the air. And I'm like, what the fuck is he holding up? Because usually I'm like, a, I'm a superhero in my visions, you know, because that's how I annihilate the dark forces. So I'm up there looking, what, what does he got in his hand? It's like glowing, and he like, he like brings it down I'm like looking at it and I'm looking at his hands and it's like a, it's a heart. And so I'm like, oh man, I gotta think quick. Because in the Boiti tradition, you gotta be on your, you gotta be on your P's and Q's, you gotta be really quick. Yeah. So I grabbed it. And then I'm grabbing, I'm looking at the heart. It's like a real human heart. Because everything's real in these visions. And he's looking at me and he's like, well now what are you gonna do with it? <laughs> oh damn. Okay. So I open my chest. Like, you know, like a board game. And you can see everything real estate, like plain estate, clear. Organs, everything. But the only thing that was missing was the heart. There was no heart there. It was just like a dark cloud. Then my heart area. So I took that heart and well, okay, that's where it goes. So I pop the heart in there. I can literally feel it, feel it fusing together, like outside of me. Um, and then from there, I see this chalice hovering like the sun, glowing like the sun. I'm like, wow, and I grab it. 
looks like gold. Okay, and then I pour it over the heart and I can feel it like, like encapsulating the entire heart. Heart of gold. Heart of gold. And I close it up, like close the board game up, take off like superhero. <laughs> that was it. There you go. Yeah, <clears throat> I, I have a great relationship with his ancestors also. It's nice. <laughs> and I'll, I'll share just a, a little bit more briefly. Be, I speak. I know I can speak for both of us because we almost share a brain hmm. now. So when I say the medicine worked, you know, he was a new person in 24 hours, that's true. But the medicine for us was not just a material substance to consume. It was the preparation that began the moment we decided to take it. It was the full participation with the Buiti facilitation, which was remarkable. It was extremely skillful, detailed, nuanced, ancient, um, very, very helpful in a lasting way. And I could feel that that was integral for us in our outcome. Um, everything from the fire talk to the music, which I'm going to read a tiny short little passage about the music, and to the integration and the community like this. You know, the community um, and... And the work, because when you have revelations from the medicine, sometimes you need to build a new skill set <laughs> to, to support those revelations. So it was a lot of uh, work before, during, and after. Um, and so here's a little, a little taste of the music. Um, it seemed intentional, even destined, that the Buiti music was teaching me through space and time on those particular nights through that device, there in that little makeshift temple in Costa Rica. The benevolent sounds were healing many layers of my being. The elaborate patterns of percussion were continually disrupting the habitual downward spirals of my mind. I sent thanks to the music musicians, wherever they were. The exuberant music communicated, life, 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 keep dancing, keep drumming, keep singing, Keep on, keeping on, keep creating, exploring, hunting, feasting, giving, growing, birthing, being, loving, living. Yes, more life. Let me say, well, let me say one more thing. Let me speak to your soul real quick. Um, when it comes to plant medicines, preferably iboga, I mean, iboga, but any plant medicine that you prefer, as long as your intention is there, really... Tune into that. Tune, tune into your attention when it comes to these plant medicines. Make sure the container is there for you. The spirit of the medicine is there for you. Really tune into your attention. That is like, you need to overstand that. Yes. Really feel that. Uh, yeah. Just that is, that is the truth. That is from the heart. From me to you. So I brought my water with me, which is important because I could get a little bit nervous. I, as one of the other speakers said earlier, um, he said talking about he talked about having social anxiety for his whole life, and that's the case for me too. And even though I've done a lot of public speaking in the last several years, now I still can get nervous. So. It's important to have water, but 
the other thing about the water you'll you'll hear later on. It's part of my. It's an integral part of my story. So it's there for security purposes as well as the part of the story. Uh, so about seven years ago, uh, when I first was about to embark on my research on ibogaine treatment for uh, for opioid use disorder, I had the opportunity to take part in an ayahuasca circle. Uh, and unlike uh, Mateo earlier, who was talking about going to the Amazon, I went to an ayahuasca circle, which was about less than 50 miles from here. And um, it was my first experience with ayahuasca, and this point, to this point, my only one. Uh, and uh, I had prepared for it with the diet that was uh, prescribed, and I abstained from sex for at least a week beforehand, and I was getting ready for it, and the day of it, I took off the entire day from work, and uh, I ate very little, and I had only a little bit of water, too, and it turned out that this ceremony was out in the desert, uh, inside, but it was an overnight ceremony in the desert, and um, there were maybe 30 or 40 people there, and uh, it was beautiful. They had a, they had a songbook, which had traditional uh, songs in Portuguese and in other languages, as well as some kind of modern pop songs like by the Beatles or the Carpenters. And, and so we had this, this hymnal of, of songs, basically, to sing during the entire thing. And we were told by the facilitators of this ceremony that if we ever got into a, a tough spot, if we were really struggling, just to make sure we continued to sing the songs that would keep us anchored and keep us grounded. And um, the songs were, were quite beautiful. Um, so I had been there, I went there with a, a close friend of mine, uh, another guy, and he was right next to me during this, this whole experience. Uh, and we started out with, um, with one cup of the ayahuasca uh, brew. And uh, it, it affected me within about 30 minutes. I felt it you know, really strongly within me, but I was still really lucid and I could continue reading the songbook and singing the songs. And, um, uh, and at one point I, I heard some pan pipes. There were all instruments all over this room uh, and people could pick the instruments up and play along with the facilitators who had guitars and other instruments that they were playing and they were singing as well. Uh, and I looked around to see who the panpipe player was and there wasn't anybody playing a panpipe. Um, and so I thought, well, this is music, I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna make this music. So I whistled the music and the, uh, the, the man who was co-facilitating was playing guitar uh, told me later on, he was, it was really great, but I had my eyes closed. He wanted me to keep doing it but he was signaling to me and I wasn't looking because I had my eyes closed at the time. Um, but what really struck me at that point was how my self-judgment, which had been with me my whole life, completely went away. And so I was just able to hear this music and, and put it out there without any, it, because I didn't have that judgment of, well, is this okay? Is this something I should be doing? I just did it. Uh, so it just that, that flow is so easy. So we get, we get to this part where we have the second cup of the ayahuasca, and uh, I have no idea what's about to come up, but the second one really put me into a completely different space. Um, so uh, maybe 15 or 20 minutes after the second cup, we each had a second cup of this, uh, of this brew, 
and I was looking at, I was sharing the songbook with my friend, and I started, I got to the point where the words started to look really blurry, and I couldn't really make out the words very well on the page. And then I got to the point where I really couldn't see anything, I couldn't really focus on the paper, on the page at all, and I couldn't really even think about the song that much. I could just kind of absorb everything. So I put the songbook down. And uh, that's when I really started to go inward. And um, I started to think about a point in my life when I was in my teens where I was uh, suicidal. And uh, another point in my life where I was in my mid-20s, I was 25 years old. Uh, so. That was about 20 years before that, that I had uh, very nearly killed myself. And I started asking myself this question of why. Why was I suicidal? Why did I have this, this uh, self-hatred pattern through my life? Uh, and um, something that was very familiar to me came up, which was this idea of, of having some kind of a demon inside me, which was telling me my whole life, I recognized this thing from when I was a child that I'd had with me my whole life and that had gripped me and was telling me, you're broken, you're, 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 uh, there's something wrong with you, like you're very poor. And uh, I saw this as being the sort of root of why I had been, had been suicidal, why I hated myself and why I went through these, these periods of suicidality. And we've been told before we went into the ceremony that uh, we should uh, let the medicine uh, present whatever was going to happen, but also that we could ask the medicine, we could ask the, med the spirit, uh, the plant, uh, any questions we wanted to ask. So I said, okay, I want to know what this is. Please tell me where this is coming from. It doesn't matter what it is, if it's something, something really frightening that I've forgotten about or you know, something from a past life, just please show me what this is so I can move past it. Uh, and uh, it wouldn't, I wouldn't, I couldn't see anything. All I could see was all the, I was gripped by this, this, this self-hatred and this, 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 this anguish of, of uh, uh, wanting to, to just being in such pain and not being able to end it. Uh, and um, so I, and I started, to, my heart race started to race and I was getting really, uh, like I was breathing really heavily and um, I realized that I was starting to get really thirsty too. So on top of being in this really anguished state, I was, I was feeling really thirsty and I realized, oh, I'm out in the desert. I haven't had much to eat. I haven't been drinking much water. They've been telling us they don't drink too much water, so I've been careful about that. And um, I had this liter of water that I brought with me. Uh, and uh, I hadn't purged, but I was, and, uh, and they'd been there in the ceremony for, for probably a few hours, and it only had a little bit of water at that point. Um, so I thought, oh, I'm gonna, I should drink some water because I'm dehydrated, this could be dangerous. So at that point, I started drinking water, and I tried to calm myself down by getting into a, uh, I was doing yoga to calm myself down and doing yoga breathing. And, um, and I started drinking more and more water, and I realized I'm, no matter how much water I was drinking, I was still thirsty, and my heart was still racing. And I thought, okay, I've done it this time because uh, I didn't drink enough water. I didn't plan well, and at this point, my body's probably you know it's too far it's too far gone. You know, I'm gonna be I'm just gonna die. Uh, and so 
I started really convincing myself I was going to die, but I, I thought, I don't want to die. For one thing, um, if I die here, there's this, this secret ceremony out in the desert. And you know, what are they going to do? If I can say, look, I'm going to die. Could you please call the paramedics? They're going to, you know, it's going to end the ceremony. It's going to ruin the whole thing for everybody. <laughs> so, so and seriously, this is my thought. And I also thought, well, I've got these two young boys at home. I don't want them to have, you know, to be the kids who had their dad die in an ayahuasca ceremony. <laughs> so, and I thought, okay, it's, I really don't want this to happen. I don't, I just don't want to die anyway. You know, this isn't really my, I don't think this is my time to die. So, um, I started kind of bargaining, like, okay, I just want to make it through this, right? And, um, and I continued the yogic breathing and everything, and all right, so I finished the whole liter of water. I'm thinking, wow, I haven't even peed in like four hours. What's going on here? And um, uh, I thought, okay, this is, I'm, I don't want to die here, but it looks like it might happen. I'm not going to get him to call the paramedics. You know, if I'm going to die here, you know, I'm going to... I'm going to go back to reading the songbook and, and singing along. If I'm going to die here, it's going to be a it's going to be a good death, you know. It's going to, I'm going to go down. I'm going to have the best ceremony ever, you know. So, um, and then once I accepted that I might die, that I was going to, oh, I, I might die here, you know. That's that's okay. Then I was like, oh, I need to pee. Wow, I need to pee. Oh, I made it. So I, I, I was like, I was so ecstatic, but I had to pee. And I got up and I, I, I walked out to the bathroom, peed, and I thought, I'm gonna, I'm gonna live. I'm gonna live. I'm gonna go back and I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be able to see my kids again. You know, and this is great. You know, and uh, and I never really got that answer about why I had been suicidal. But when I came back, uh, what the medicine told me was. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter why why you felt that way, why you had those thoughts. Because no matter what you had in you, it was just a story. And you can the story only has power over you if you believe that story, if you let it if you let it have power over you. So, you know, make your own story. So Yeah. yeah. ago is the uh, last time I uh, appeared in public. I, I take, took myself off of the circuit and I've become a hermit. I live up in Carlsbad. This is the farthest I've ventured from home in quite a while. So uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't start my time yet. I'll, I'll tell you when I start the story. I wanted to, to mention that uh, Caitlin said how Ashley Booth started the AWARE project. And as probably about two years ago, I guess, it started up in, in L.A., and Ashley got a hold of me to see if I'd podcast some of them. Uh, particularly the first one she did, uh, she invited Kathleen Wirt to uh, speak, because what she wanted to do, Ashley wanted to do, was recreate Kathleen's salon. Kathleen held a salon in Venice for a number of years. It started out as the Hoffman Foundation Salon. Uh, and uh, it was for the Albert Hoffman Foundation, and they had uh, all of the work that Hoffman had done, and uh, people came down from, from uh, up north, uh, the Shulgans came down to start it, and uh, sort of the store offs, and it was uh, once a month, and it was held at her house in Venice Beach, a really funky house. I had such a feeling of deja vu when Caitlin started tonight, because Kathleen, Kathleen Work, who had the salon, started every salon the same way, saying, you know, don't buy, don't sell here, don't use your drugs here, this is to talk about. I heard the whole thing again, 
In fact, her salon was really an impressive salon. It was uh, uh, such a collection of uh, people that, uh, you know, the guy who wrote the drug law for the state of uh, Washington was one of the regulars there, and uh, he, that was long before he did it. But uh, the, the uh, salons by Kathleen were really important because it brought together a group of people like this once a month. And now that I know that we're projects here in San Diego, I will venture out and start coming to these affairs because they're a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, in my novel, The Genesis Generation, I actually have a whole chapter about Kathleen's salon, but uh, Kathleen didn't want to be too public, and so we used the Irish uh, spelling of her name, Caitlin's Salon. So, <laughs> so there's a, a good description of what that salon used to be like. And I also wanted to talk uh, just a, a moment about the symposia team. Th this is an awesome thing these guys are doing. Uh, my friend Bruce Damer bumped into him uh, for the first time. I think it was at Symbiosis. Is that where it was? He came back from Symbiosis and called me the day he got home. He says, these guys are doing some amazing things. You need to get a hold of them. Because, see, Bruce knew that I was burning out on the salon. I've done it for over 12 years now. And when I started it in 2005, I was thinking about calling it, oh, maybe the Entheogen Salon or you know, something like that, because the word psychedelic uh, back then just wasn't that long ago. It was kind of toxic, and you had to be careful. But a really close friend of mine who's gay said, you know, they're going to take that word away from you. I don't care what you call it, because, you know, they tried to take queer away from us, but we took it back. So why don't you just start with psychedelic? And so that's where the psychedelic salon uh, came from. And uh, now I've done uh, over 500, about 538 podcasts today. And, and I, but I was getting a little burned out. And so now, because of what the symposia team is doing, is we've started a parallel track. We're calling it Salon 2. And every week I'm putting out one of their podcasts too. And then in another year or so, when I've run out of the last few Terrence McKenna tapes I have, I can see how very easily I can ease myself into the sunset and the salon will continue because uh, it has a big audience. I was, you know, when I first started, it was the only psychedelic podcast. And so you know, it got picked up on iTunes and hundreds of thousands of people listen to this every week. And that's one of the reasons I kind of took myself off the circuit because I, I really don't want to think about all that. I do this as a hobby and it was a lot of fun. And, and you know, I, I wanted to preserve Terrence McKenna's talks because his archive got uh, destroyed. And so Ralph Abraham gave me all those talks that they'd done with the trialogues. And, and uh, things started growing. Then I started the, uh, I'd already had started the uh, Planque Norte talks at Burning Man. And so those are going on every year. And I've been able to, <laughs> I, I haven't been back to Burning Man since 2007, but the Palenque Norte talks keep going on because I passed it on to, uh, well, Chris Peza first, and he's passed it on to some other people. So it's still become a really uh, uh, interesting uh, session at Burning Man. When we started in 2003 at Burning Man, it was the only talk series. Uh, I, you know, I just called up Eric Davis and a few friends of mine and said, hey, we ought to do this. And they didn't think anything would come of it, but they all agreed to do it. And uh, that first year we had Alex and Allison Gray and Bruce Damer and Eric Davis and Daniel Pinchbeck and people like that who were just people I knew from our Palenque uh, uh, meetings down in, in Palenque, Mexico. Well, now Burning Man has a whole program of, of talks that are given at a dozen camps. It's, it's become a really kind of a thing out there. So that was that's very satisfying to see that go on, and that's why I hope that uh, over the years, next year or two now, that the symposia team, you know, gears up even more, and I gear down, and we can just turn the, the salon podcast over to them, because 
you know, it's a big audience, and these guys are doing a lot of work. I think they deserve a big hand for traveling around the country. So just a real thing before I introduce, I, I, don't start my time yet. <laughs> see, see why I had to get off the, the road, I, I like to talk too much. Uh, just to give you a little background so that, because those who don't know me, uh, I was a naval officer in Vietnam, came back to Houston, finished law school, practiced law in Houston, uh, moved to Dallas, started a computer company, and at the age of 42, I had still never yet even smoked pot. I was a Texas lawyer. I was an Irish Catholic Republican lawyer, and, <laughs> and then I had my first hit of MDMA. <laughs> I'm still Irish, but everything else is going on. <laughs> Well, I said, now, well, I'm still a member of the Texas Bar, and if you go to the Texas Bar Association website, my picture's still there, but I'm the only one not in a coat and tie. I put my Burning Man picture up there. So. <laughs> but, so here I was, 42 years old, and I'd never experienced any of this stuff. You know, I'd been, you know, straight and narrow, you know, good Catholic boy. Uh, I was pretty much getting to not be a Catholic by then, but I, I fell in with some people that were selling MDMA ecstasy. And a lot of people aren't aware of this, but Dallas was ground zero for ecstasy hitting the street. Out here in the West Coast, they've been using it for psychotherapy for years, and it was all big underground thing. Dallas, it hit the street, and it got into the Stark Club, and it was, it was an amazing scene. If, uh, I won't talk about that now, because you can go to our website, psychedelicsalon.com, and on the front page, there's a 30-minute interview called Confessions of an Ecstasy Advocate, and that tells the stories of how I got involved in all this. But after a little while, things got hot in Dallas, and I had to pack up the family and move to another state. Because uh, what happened is I became a drug dealer. I didn't intend to do it. But my computer company was struggling, and I was making so much money selling ecstasy. I kept the darn thing open for probably a year longer than I should have. But uh, anyhow, we closed it, packed up, and went to Florida. And for the next uh, seven, eight, nine years, I... I yeah, I didn't know anybody. You know, I, I had to buy drugs from my teenage son. Well, you know, he was in 25 or so by then. But, you know, I had one friend my age who was still doing psychedelics. I didn't know anybody, anything. Well, I wound up, long story short, I found out about the Palenque conferences. Palenque and Theobotany conferences in Palenque, Mexico. And they were a, a long-running affair that stopped in 2001, was the last one. And... It was in 99, I went to the, the first one I went to, and I guess you can start the story just about now, the time again. <laughs> so, I, I'm out there at the end of the line, didn't know anybody but one other guy doing psychedelics. He and I go down to Palenque, it's down in the Chiapas, it's when all that problem was going on with the, the revolution down there, and I thought we were being really brave going down to this drug conference in Chiapas, and... And uh, I get down there, and uh, the woman who's now my wife, I saw her. She's sitting by the pool. It was her sixth year there. <laughs> and that's where we got to know so many people that were involved in this, this uh, type of work. Because what they did in those conferences is they, were, they, they ran for a week, two weeks back to back. But there were like 20 speakers. But it was Sasha Shulgin and, and uh, Jonathan Ott and, and Rob Montgomery and... Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of his name, the, the Italian guy that did all the work with uh, Giorgio Giboga. Savarini. 
What? Giorgio Samarini. Giorgio Samarini, yeah. And, and it was really a cool thing because they had a family-style dinner where you could sit and really get to know these speakers. I mean, we'd spend a whole week with them and sit around smoking dope and talking in the evenings on, the, uh, on our little patios. Everybody had, there were little cabins for rooms, and there were two, to, two cabins to a little building. And all these little buildings were scattered out in the jungle, around the uh, jungle and the pool, and then up high, on a higher elevation, was the restaurant. And then way up at the top, there, across the road, up this big hill, it was a mountain, there was a big meeting room. That's where the meetings were, and it was where the overflow crowd would stay. There, was a, there were rooms there. So on this particular one, when you, when you went up there, it wasn't like climbing stairs. It was like carved into the side of this wall were these big steps and it was really a climb to get up there. I, I always liked following the Shulkins because they went really slowly, you know, and you didn't want to get young people behind you because they were always mad because it was really difficult to climb this thing because it was a climb. It wasn't like stairs. You could do them one at a time and they were pretty steep. Anyhow, we get up there and this one day, it was in uh, 2000, the first year that Terrence McKenna didn't make it and uh, it, it, actually he died just like three months later. But uh, we were a whole bunch of us down there and this one chemist, whose name has to still not be revealed, he uh, had made some 2CT7. And uh, actually he had a whole bunch of stuff. We experimented with a lot of things down there. And, and over the, you know, right now, I'll, I'll be 75 in August and I have tried everything except heroin, crack, and although I've had several chances to try it, I've never had the courage to try Iboga. <laughs> but it's, it's something you have to really be serious about. And I, I never just really set aside the time to do that. But I've, I've done dozens of, of Sasha's things. I've done lots of ayahuasca, a lot of things that you, you've heard about. And here I am, almost 75. One year ago is the very first time I started taking any kind of prescription medicine. And I take five milligrams of, of little heart uh, blood pressure medicine. They started out at 10. They had to cut it down because the cannabis was knocking my blood pressure down about 15 points when I'd smoke it every day. So, and I smoke cannabis every day, so I didn't see taking all this prescription medicine. So I don't have side effects of all these medicines that my friends my age do. I smoke pot every day, and I'm very healthy. I, I eat organic food, and I exercise. But... I think that uh, one of the reasons I'm trying to promote psychedelics is because, as the young lady said earlier today, we can actually save the world. You know, I, I'm not encouraged that I'm going to get it done yet in my lifetime, but I really believe that if more people, 15% of the population, no more than that is necessary to really change the world because we, we touch so many people and do so many other things. So getting to my story, finally. We're having this experiment with 2CT7. Chemist is staying at the top up by the, the uh, place where we had our, our lectures. And so this big climb up there, we go up and 48 of us decided to try it for the first time that day. I think it's probably still the biggest group of, of t people taking 2CT7 at one time ever. <laughs> so this was on a Sunday. And I had made arrangements to buy some pot at 11 o'clock in the morning. Well, we took this about, I guess, between 8 and 9 sometime at his room up there. And everybody walked in, and, and it was all powder. And he, he'd check your weight, and then he'd measure out just enough for you. I have no idea how much I took, but it was the right amount. Because, 
You know how Sasha has a scale of plus one to plus five. And a plus one means you get a little tingle, you know you've taken something, but it's just a little tingle. A plus five, that's not where you see God, that's where you are God. I mean, but, and plus fives are amazing in that you come back knowing everything's fine, everything's perfect, you don't have to worry about a thing. But you can't remember what happened. You can't put a word around it. So plus ones and plus fives really, I don't think, are worth worth the time. This was this was one of my very best plus fours ever. So I take this two CC seven. We go sitting in the in the conference room, and I don't remember who was speaking in the morning, but I knew at noon we were going to have lunch, and then go out to the ruins at Palenque, where Christian Rush, who is probably the world's leading expert on shamanism and had lived there in the, in the jungle with the Lock and Dome for three years uh, and, and really knew those ruins better than anybody. I was so looking forward to hear the, this talk. But I'm sitting in the room, and I could tell things are starting to get a little, you know, wobbly. Things are, something's happening. And all of a sudden, I realize it's close to 11, and my drug deal is going to go on down at the, the uh, next level down at the lunch place. So I decided I better head on down there. And I go out, and going up those, those stairs, I guess you call them, was not so bad as going down. Because they were like, it felt like this, you know, you felt you're gonna fall. So I had to sit in my butt and just go one down at a time. It, it took a long time to get down. Then I had to walk down this hill to the restaurant, and some people who I passed told me the next day, they said, man, did you look weird. You're, you're taking these little tiny baby steps, and you're glowing. You know, I, I knew, I could, well, the guy I bought the pot from, first thing, he saw me from across the room, and he said, whoa, you better sit down. Yeah. I was just ecstatic. Well, somehow I get through lunch, and, and uh, my wife got me on the bus, and we all go out. Now, keep in mind, there's 48 of us that have done this, and <laughs> I think they're probably all having experiences like mine, but we get out there, and Christian gets everybody off to the side to, to uh, do his talk, and it was quite obvious that I was not going to be able to stand up to do it. So my wife walks me into the, the compound and sits me down on the main pyramid there and said, just wait here, and I'll come back and get you. <laughs> well, she said, she, she said it was about two hours later when she came back to get me, and I'm still sitting there because, and, and this, I can still see this. You know what Cairo syrup is? You know that sticky, but it's clear? I was in Cairo syrup, but it was energy. I could see the energy of the ruins, and it was so thick that when she got me up to walk down to where the, the queen's bath was, it took forever because I was pushing this energy. I mean, I could see the energy. It was awesome. It was one of the most amazing trips I've ever had. Long story short, uh, we get back, and, and uh, it's the next day. Well, I should say one other thing as a side note. One of the people in our little experiment had been taking a prescription SSRI, I think it was, and had a horrible reaction, almost died. And that was the first time that some of these chemists realized how bad it was to interact with prescription drugs with some of these ABC things that uh, Sasha came up with. But anyhow, the, we come back and everybody's you know settling down. We had a great night. So it's the next day and we're on to some new drug. And <laughs> I was in 
this cabin with uh, four other people, and we were having what for me at that time was one of the wildest experiences of my life, when all of a sudden the door blasts open, and this young scientist comes in. He is he made type A people look lethargic. He was just <laughs> wired. And he had his laptop in his hand, and he came in and he says, I'm doing a survey. This is the biggest group ever with 2CT7. We're going to publish the results of this survey. And he's, he's going on like this, and we were all just really not in a mood to hear this. And he says, I've got some questionnaires I'd like to give you. And he's reaching for his backpack as he sees us getting stuff to throw at him, okay? So he backed out, and uh, <laughs> the next day he actually did write his report. It was published in maps. I printed out a copy of it today because my plus four trip, which was really, I can still remember so much, is an incredible trip. Here is the entire, uh, you know, I filled up like a three-page form for this guy. Here is what I got out of the trip. Here's what came into the form. At, three, at the three-hour mark, I had to interact with straight people and negotiate a business exchange. No problem as long as I focus my concentration. Now, that's the rest of the story. <laughs> you know, Paul Harvey used to do the rest of the story. Well, my plus four experience is like a nothing thing here. But the real rest of the story is the name of the person who wrote this report, the wild type A scientist, was Casey Hardison. Now, some of you know the name Casey Hardison because a few years later, he was arrested in England with the biggest drug bust, biggest chemical lab they've ever had in the history. And Casey went on to defend himself in court, and he didn't defend himself the normal way. Instead, he castigated and just gave the lawyers and judges a hard time about cognitive liberty, and it was a right of human beings, and, and he wound up with a 20-year sentence. And he did wind up spending about 10 years in a, in a cage in England. Uh, but Casey is the one that wrote this report. Casey and Matteo and I had some... <laughs> unfortunate experiences together where Casey was a lot of overhead at one time, but I want to say this about him. He has one of the most brilliant minds of any young person I've ever come across. And Casey now is not only out of prison, he's married, he's living here back in the States, has a child, and I expect a lot of brilliant work from Casey. In fact, the symposia people just recently, yesterday or today or the day before, uh, posted a, the obituary that Casey wrote about our friend Nick Sand. And as you probably know, Nick died Monday night, died in his sleep. And uh, Casey wrote, I think, a really brilliant obituary. And even though Casey and I, still, I still think of Casey as a, a friend, but he, he was a, <laughs> a difficult friend for a while. And uh, all I can say for sure about my future with Casey is that when I die, I really hope he writes my obituary. I don't know what he'll say, but it'll be very well written. So that's my story. So um, about, I would say maybe a, a year and a half, I guess July or so of 2015, um, life started to get really complicated for me. And um, interestingly enough, that's about when I started dating Jake. <laughs> maybe, maybe not a coincidence. Um, and uh, I, it was 
Around this time that I uh, just started experience Cambo, Cambo Frog Medicine, if you guys are not aware of it, um, it's this Amazonian medicine where you burn people and then you rub this frog venom in their burns and then they vomit and it's healing and there's a lot in between. But anyways, um, I, there was a lot of complicated things going on in my life and I felt like my whole life was kind of crashing down and I was feeling very confused about things. And um, so rewind, um, about five years ago, I went to the Peruvian Amazon by myself. I was 21 and I went to have my first ayahuasca experiences in Iquitos, Peru. And um, the first night that I got to this ayahuasca center, um, I had this very vivid dream and it was this green tree frog and um, there was a chameleon also in the dream and the chameleon kept saying to me, what is you, what is you? Kind of like Yoda. And I, I couldn't really understand what this dream was about, but it was so vivid that I remembered it. And at this time I didn't even know what Cambo was. Um, so I had this green tree frog dream, hadn't even drank ayahuasca yet. And then, um, you know, as I was participating in the ayahuasca ceremonies, um, this symbol of a rattlesnake kept coming up and it brought me a message. And it, it all started when I was drawing these animal cards. And um, when I was looking through them, the rattlesnake really jumped out at me. And um, I ended up drawing the rattlesnake card. And underneath the card, it said, um, this retreat, specifically the word retreat, is your initiation of becoming a healer. I'm like, hmm, that's cool, yeah, okay. So that night, um, I drank in ceremony, rattlesnakes everywhere, and um, that, that message was reiterated to me. And so I'm like, okay, you know, maybe I'm having a shamanic initiation, whatever. Um, and there was probably a bit of ego tied to that. I'm sure we all know a lot of um, people that are, you know, want to be healers and shamans and such. And, and in the end, we all kind of have the ability to be a healer. So um, I, left, I left that experience um, bringing that home that maybe I had some special gifts to help facilitate healing in others. So um, I returned to Peru a year later, actually, with my mom, who's here. And um, I snuck away to PSAC, Sacred Valley, and I did an ayahuasca ceremony. And I met my mom the next day in PSAC. And um, it was a, a very potent experience, and at that time, probably the most productive of the five ceremonies that I had done. And um, I ended up going on the Inca Trail two days later, uh, which if, I don't know if any of you have been on the Inca Trail, but it's amazing. So I was kind of blasted wide open. And I'm hiking on the Inca Trail, a um, lot of silence, a lot of time to be alone with my thoughts. And um, this might sound a little crazy, but maybe not so crazy to you guys. Um, this was the first time that plants started to communicate with me. And I'm sure they were probably, they're probably trying all the time, but it was the first time when I was quiet enough to listen. And they gave me this message that in three years, I was gonna come back to the jungle and study shamanism, plant medicine. And I'm like, oh cool, kind of took it with a grain of salt. Went back to my life, time went by, and then fast forward now to July, August, 2015. Um, life is crumbling, 
crumbling down. I just started to experiment with Cambo. And um, I don't know if any of you have tried Cambo, but it's a very mysterious and bizarre medicine, and it works very much in the metaphysical realm as much as the biochemical. And um, it, <laughs> so my roommate showed up one day with a chameleon, a pet chameleon. I don't know if I've ever even seen a chameleon in real life. And I'm like, huh. And my instant sort of thought was um, this dream that I had four years ago in the jungle. I'm like, huh, the frog and the chameleon. That's weird. And it was um, all occurring, I think, this happened maybe a weekend that I decided to drink ayahuasca again after maybe a year and a half of not drinking. Very bizarre. Um, it felt not coincidental. So um, I started having all these really weird things happening. I, I started to experience this weird brain fog and confusion. Shit was hitting the fan with some drama in the house, um, with roommates, and there was a lot of difficult decisions that I was having to make in life, and I was feeling completely overwhelmed, like I didn't know what to do with my life. And um, I remember I, I stepped out into the backyard um, after a very upsetting encounter with a roommate, and um, I was just trying to get some fresh air, and all of a sudden, I felt the embrace of the weeds. The weeds were spiritually embracing me and communicating with me. And I was like, oh my God. And they, they just said, you're fine. Trust us. We're helping you. We're guiding you. And my first thought was, oh my God, they can read my thoughts. I hope they don't, I hope they're not upset that we are planning on trimming them soon. <laughs> and I, so I was getting a lot of really strange, the plants were reaching out to me more than usual. It, they had kind of done it sporadically over the years. And, but it was happening a lot, and I was, you know, I felt like I was kind of going psychotic in a way, and I didn't know what was happening. And um, I, I was really looking for answers. And so a friend of mine that I had met in this uh, Akito's retreat, he messaged me on Facebook, and he said, "Hey, I'm going to this retreat in Ecuador with the shaman I've been working with. You should come." And immediately, um, I just felt like. Yes, the plants just screamed at me. They're like, yes, this is it. This is what we're leading you to. Just do it. So I very impulsively was like, okay, I'm going to Ecuador. So um, about a week later, I found out I had to move out of my house that I had been living in for five years. Um, and so I had you know, a month trip planned in two months. It was during the holidays. And so I ended up moving in with my parents' house temporarily. Um, I own a business that sells supplements. So I had thousands of dollars of inventory that I ended up storing in five different locations while I'm living with my parents and going to Ecuador. So um, anyways, I get to Ecuador. By the way, this was about three years after I had that experience where the plants were going to tell me I was going to come back in three years. Very weird. So um, I, I signed up for this retreat in Ecuador and it was very, very intense. It was meant to be intense. So um, it was, uh, to give you some frame of reference, I drank 14 times in 16 days. I don't recommend that, honestly. Um, and where do I even start? So basically every night we did ceremony and it was, it was mostly um, ayahuasca. However, we also did a San Pedro and a tobacco tea. And then we um, did this ceremony called Natu Mamu, two nights. 
And so this was the, um, the shuar tradition. It wasn't the shipibo that a lot of people are used to, shuar, which is a, a different sort of um, indigenous culture. And in shuar, they call ayahuasca natim. So um, natumamu, I just want to share what natumamu is with you guys. So natumamu is a ceremony where you just drink the, the vine. You make a brew out of the vine. So normally ayahuasca has the vine, um, which has the monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and then chacruna usually is the plant with the DMT. So in this case, I just have the vine, no DMT. So, um, you know, monoamine oxidase blocks your, um, it, or sorry, monoamine oxidase degrades your own endogenous neurotransmitters like serotonin and, um, and uh, dopamine to some extent. And so this, the ayahuasca vine is full of these monoamine oxidase inhibitors. So what's kind of fascinating about it is you actually get high off your own brain chemistry because, you know, if, if you don't have the DMT added, um, then it's just blocking the natural degradation process of serotonin and these other neurotransmitters. So that I find kind of fascinating that it, the experience is really occurring within you. So um, how, how the ceremony works is normally when you drink ayahuasca, it's like a shot glass, right? It's this very condensed syrupy liquid. Natsumamu is, um, it's not quite as um, concentrated. It's more dilute. And you actually drink liters and liters and liters and liters of it. And so there were about 25 of us in the group. And there were about four vats, like maybe this big, and um, filled with this Natsumamu brew. And we all line up on the edge of the jungle. And we all are, have a bowl that's about maybe half a liter um, of liquid can fit in it. And there's maybe five or so helpers. And basically, you have to chug as much of this fluid as you can tolerate. Um, not, not even to tolerate, until it's all gone. So it's the responsibility of the group to drink the entire four vats of this brew that we all made that morning. And everybody lines up on the edge of the jungle, their little vomit center. And um, we have these bowls. And the, the helper's job is to refill your bowl and yell at you to keep drinking and hand you tissues. And uh, they're saying, mate, 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 which is the schwar word for drink. And so you start out, it's like not so bad, you know, and then you're drinking it. And then um, maybe after like three or four bowls, that's when you start to vomit. And you're basically alternating between um, guzzling this fluid and vomiting. It's, it's kind of, I call it the schwar frat party. It's like <laughs> complete binge drinking. And um, it's, it's just, I mean, I probably vomited like a hundred times in each ceremony. And um, you start to get really high and, you know, you're staring into the jungle and the sounds reverberating off the plants in front of you. And um, you, your hands start to shake and you can't hold your bowl and you're like sitting there and you're crying and they see you not drinking or vomiting and they're like, you got to do one or the other. And they keep drinking, keep filling your bowl, you're puking, they're filling your bowl while you're puking. Eventually you get to a point that you can't stand anymore. So they bring you a chair and they keep filling up your bowl. And uh, at the end of it, anyone, anywhere between maybe 10 to 20 liters of fluid have been consumed and vomited quite quickly. Um, and finally, when it's all said and done, 
um, you know, everybody's, we finished the brew between all 25 of us. Um, you know, they ring the gong, okay, the drinking part is over. This goes on for about an hour, by the way. It's awful. It's awful. It's I remember both times, we did this two days in a row, actually. I remember both times I'm holding the bowl and I'm holding it up to me and like faking drinking it because I'm just like, I, I can't keep going and I'm, I'm like crying, like I fucking hate this. And, and then, um, you know, when you're done drinking it, they have to help you to your bed. Um, and most times when you drink ayahuasca, you have to sit up. That's the, the sort of um, tradition. This, they let you lay down because it's like you're pretty fucked up. And um, then you continue to vomit and, you know, purge through the back end and all sorts of other things. Um, and then you lay there for a five-hour uh, psychoactive experience in ceremony. Pretty wild. Um, so I, we did that two nights in a row, and then we, um, you know, did a lot of other, other ayahuasca ceremonies, and, um, so, like I said, this went on for about two and a half weeks, and, um, we were eating one meal a day in the, in breakfast, we were eating breakfast, and it was basically like fruit and white rice, which is not at all what my body needs, I, I'm normally on like a high fat, low carb diet, and um, I started out really healthy, like going for jogs and shit. And uh, then I began to deteriorate um, because um, I wasn't sleep this, we weren't sleeping at all. It was like maybe two hours a night. I was just kind of my nervous system would be very agitated until the sun would come up. And I'm like, there's no fucking way I'm missing the one meal I get. So I would, of course, wake up and have breakfast. And um, it got to the point where, you know, initially I was doing a lot of healing, but then the level of exhaustion and malnourishment became um, very disruptive, and I felt like the drinking every night became excessive. It became like beating a dead horse. And one of the reasons I'm sharing this is because while I, I think psychedelics are amazing medicines, I think that they... Um, they need to be used responsibly and respectfully. And I felt like I was disrespecting this medicine and just consuming it because. And, um, you know, towards the end, so uh, the last six days of the retreat, we actually left the center and then we traveled. Um, it was like a few of us traveled to these different Shuar shamans' houses, and they were generations of generations. And um, we drank with them in their homes and stayed with them in their homes with their families. And the first, the first one we visited, um, it was a very interesting experience. This was, uh, you know, like I said, probably like two weeks into it, I was starting to really dive downhill health-wise. And, um, you know, we, we show up and there's this hut we're supposed to drink in, and it's like we have logs to sit on. And we're all looking around like, we're going to drink ayahuasca in here. Like, this is going to be so uncomfortable. And... Um, there's bugs crawling everywhere. They're, they're biting everybody, and it's, like, really not fun. And um, I was kind of at the point where I was, like, achieving a little bit of psychosis in between um, the ceremonies because I felt like my brain was atrophying just from lack of sleep and nutrition. And um, so I'm sitting there already kind of, like, over it. I'm like, I don't want to drink tonight. I'm just tired. I want to sleep. I want to integrate. You know, I don't want to just keep beating this dead horse and I had a really strange experience where um, I was sitting by the door. And so it was kind of like a, you know, like that. And I was sitting by the door. And um, I kind of was not getting a good vibe from this shaman and his assistant. 
And um, so I was the first one that they, you know, handed, handed the brew to. And um, I actually only shot maybe two thirds of it. I like intentionally didn't, didn't drink it all because I felt like something wasn't right. And then everyone else drank their medicine. And then when it was the shaman and his assistant's turn to drink, I watched them and they both took their thing outside, put it in their mouth, and then vigorously rinsed it out with water and spat it out over and over. And I was very skeptical because I'm like, why didn't they swallow the ayahuasca? And then, I wasn't even high yet. Um, then I started going on all these sort of paranoid um, thoughts of like, they hate gringos and it's really Toei, which is Datura, and we're actually about to be poisoned, we're all gonna die. And like, I went through this whole story where I was like, oh my God, what's going on? And then it was the most agonizing four hours of me sitting there um, not knowing why they didn't drink the ayahuasca. It was very concerning to me. And in the Shuar tradition, most of the ceremony is very silent and dark. Whereas in Shipibo, there's a lot more ikaros, a lot more singing, which I think really brightens the space and can help guide you into a positive you know, way of navigating. And the Shuar was just dead silent. And it was the most uncomfortable four hours of my life where I'm being attacked by bugs, my back hurts, I'm just so exhausted and I'm just paranoid. I don't, I don't know why these, these shaman didn't drink. Um, so the next night I ended up sitting out and I said, you know, I'm so exhausted. I feel like I'm, I literally feel like I'm going to die if I drink tonight. Like I just felt like my heart would just give out. I was so tired. Um, and so there were, I finished up, I finished up the last like, you know, three, four days of the retreat. And at a certain point, um, I, I knew that I was hurting myself physically. I knew that I was hurting the medicine. I was being, I was disrespecting it by just drinking it to drink it. Um, but I said to myself, you know what, finish this, do what you came to do. Because, um, once you, once you do this, you will know that you can do whatever you put your mind to and you'll never have to prove it to yourself ever again. And so that's what I did. I finished up the retreat and, um, you know, I, I did bounce back fairly okay. You know, once I was, you know, in Quito and Macas and was able to like eat normally, I think I would eat two dinners a, a day actually. Like I was eating a lot. I would like go to a restaurant, have a full dinner and then 30 minutes walk around and then go to another restaurant and have a, a second dinner. Um, but I guess my point for sharing this story is while these medicines are really powerful and beautiful, they are to be respected and not abused. And um, I also think it's really important to consider what your body is asking for um, in, in deciding you know, what traditions to adhere to because you know, when, when it was all said and done, I went and ate red meat afterwards. Um, you know, they said, oh, you should stay on diet. I'm like, no, my body needs red meat. I'm getting that right now. And um, so when I came home, unfortunately, um, I didn't have a, a lot of, uh, it was not an easy transition back. Um, I was hoping that I could bring some of the sort of lessons and glowing with me. But basically, I, um, I came home and I realized that all my problems were still there. And I had probably the most difficult year of my life. Um, within five days of returning, I got an antibiotic-resistant kidney infection. And um, I had to 
take uh, a large amount of antibiotics that basically devastated my health that I had spent the last three years rebuilding. Um, and it took me about a year to recover from the antibiotics. But um, I'm happy to say that I feel like all of that ayahuasca, all of that medicine really unwound something deep in me and it took a year to fully integrate it and to fully process the amount of toxicity that I had to really unleash out of my system. And, you know, since 2017 has happened, um, you know, I say that for an arrow to be shot forward, it needs to be pulled back. And now I'm very happy to say that that challenging year and a half was really worth it. And um, my health is better than it's ever been. My um, business that I've been working on for the last three and a half years of my life is um, profitable now. And um, I'm a cambo practitioner and that has really taken off. So um, I guess, <laughs> sorry, this is a lot of, a lot of things. Um, so the, tying in sort of the frog and the frog, I really felt like the cambo was an ally for bringing me this message with the ayahuasca and bringing me to where I am today. And um, I think it's really important that we respect these substances and realize that more is not always more. And maybe that's why I'm sharing this story is because um, I've, I've, seen, I've seen too much medicine actually hurt people and allow them to exist in this space where they just keep sort of avoiding um, pain in their, in their physical bodies um, that, that needs to be grounded and actually processed and felt. So thank you for that. Yeah. Thanks again for listening to Symposia on the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. Do us a favor. Go to iTunes or Stitcher and leave a rating or review. Tell your friends. That's how you can really help us out. Thanks to Matt Payne who engineered the sound, Joey Whip for the intro music, California Smile for the outro music, and Brian Norman who produced the show. <laughs>